Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today we are continuing our study, Why Did Jonah Run? Unpacking the Book of Jonah. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Hello everybody and welcome to the penultimate part of our walk through Jonah, part five out of six. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed uh, going through it as much as I've enjoyed doing it. This was, I think I've said before, this is one of my favourite books, so it's been such a pleasure and a privilege and an honour to go through it. So here we are at part five of six, with the final part coming on this Friday. Um I hope, as I say, I hope everyone's enjoyed it. And if you're watching live, then as I always say, please feel free to leave a comment uh, at any point. If you're not watching live, then nonetheless, great to have you here. And as I always say, the handout is available to be downloaded in the description. But if you uh, if you are struggling to work out how to do that, then just message me or get in contact with me somehow and I can email it or send it over to you. I think the handouts... Um, you might find quite a helpful resource, especially with today's one. So today, you might have seen that I've called this part the grand drama. And what we're going to do is we're going to be rooted in chapter four. So we're not really leaving Jonah chapter four uh, in part five. Um, And chapter four is really this chapter of God giving this dramatic telling of a story for Jonah to elicit uh, an emotional response from him to kind of provoke his emotions. It's, it's a provocative chapter for Jonah as it was for all of Israel. So uh, well, as well as this, I also think that Jonah chapter four is where Jonah normally gets the most bad press. So I was thinking about calling this part the grumpy teenager, because if I had a penny for every time I've heard someone preach something along the lines of Jonah, is a real grumpy guts in chapter four he's like a grumpy teenager he gets angry because he gets grumpy and angry and mad because people he doesn't like get saved well as i've said all the way through i just don't think that's what's going on in jonah and i think we're gonna so we're gonna unpack chapter four unpack the kind of the drama of chapter four today um there are there are well before we kind of get into it i just want to kind of as i always do give a brief recap So we've seen at this point that Jonah has run away because he knows that salvation to this Gentile nation is like a harbinger of judgment for his own people. He knows that their salvation means my people's judgment. And so he runs. He he doesn't want to be the one to prophesy that story or to, to, to bring that bad news on his people. And we've also seen that historically that did happen 40 years after Jonah the northern kingdom was destroyed. Jonah's people were um, destroyed and taken off into exile in Assyria. So we know that Jonah at this point knows that he has effectively sealed the fate of his own people. And we saw how he quoted Joel, which had the same context uh, in chapter four, in four verse two, we saw how he quoted Joel 2.13, I think it was. Um So now here we are, Jonah has seen Nineveh's repentance and therefore has seen the mirror image, his own people's destruction. And there's four things in this chapter that I want us to focus on um, today. And uh, if you've got the handout, then you'll see that they're the four 
headings. Jonah's anger, his death wish, you know, he says, take my life from me, the plant that God produces and the worm that God sends. I think they're the four things, the four main elements in this chapter that we need to focus on. And um, I think that once you've got these four things sorted, the whole chapter becomes much, much clearer to understand. Um, so hopefully I'll, we'll be able to squeeze it in um, and do all four. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. So the first point of the four, Jonah's anger. I've, I've done in, in inverted commas on the handout his anger because um, I, I'm going with how most English translations translate it. They normally say anger, but this is what we're going to unpack a little bit today. Uh, one of my problems with the modern interpretation is that there's a, there's a saying, whoever wins the battle of definitions wins the argument. You know, whoever gets to define what the other person thinks, they, they, they're the, they've won before you even start arguing. And it's the same with Bible translations. If the translation is what everyone uses, then you've already won the argument. But I, I actually am going to make the argument and hopefully we'll see it today together that translating this word as anger, Jonah is angry, is actually not right. Um, so we're going to see that. So first, if I were to say to you, I am at the end of my tether, the question, well, actually, this may be a good time, time to use the live commenting thing. If I said to you, I'm at the end of my tether, what would that mean to you? What, what emotion do you think I'd be feeling if, if no one uh, comments and I'll just kind of <laughs> explain it anyway? But um, do, do leave a comment. If I would say I'm at the end of my tether, what do you think that that means? Frustration. Yeah, there's a, there's a good um, answer. It, it could well mean frustration. Um, it could also mean uh, anger. If I said, if I said oh, I'm at the end of my tether with you, then it would come across as anger and kind of furiousness. If I'm saying, if I said to you in a quivering voice, I'm just at the end of my tether, you wouldn't think I'm angry. You'd think I'm broken just at the end of myself. I can't do anything else. So the same words, the same phrase can mean two very different emotions. Someone who is red-faced angry would not be treated the same way as someone who is broken and upset. Um, it's controlled by the context. And it's the same thing that's going on in Jonah chapter 4. So the word that's used in Jonah 4 is, is the Hebrew word vahicha. And it comes from another Hebrew word, which is kara, which is really hard to say. Um, because that's Hebrew. But the, the word karar, it means boiling over. So if you were a Hebrew family and you saw your pot was on the stove and the water was bubbling over the top, you would describe it in that word, karar. It's boiling over. And Hebrew uses most of its words, it gets from things you can observe. So for instance, um, the word for right, as in the direction right, is the same word for hand, because you do most things with your right hand. So it's always based in something that you can see. So another example, the word for anger is the same as the word for nostrils, because when you get angry, <laughs> you puff your nostrils. So the word af for anger is nostrils, which is why plenty of times in the Old Testament, 
you see it talks about God blowing his wrath through his nostrils, which is quite odd language for us. But in Hebrew, that's just a play on words. So Jonah is here boiling over. Now, this word can mean anger. In, in fact, it, it usually does mean anger. So I'm not, I'm not disputing that. So it could well be that Jonah is here and angry. But seeing what I've already seen, I don't think this fits the context. And if you look on the handout, you see, so the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament that I mentioned in part one, the Septuagint was written by people who were aware that plenty of Jews were losing their grasp on the Hebrew language and they needed the scriptures, so they translated them into Greek for them, which is what everyone spoke. And there's some, obviously, as you translate, you naturally put some interpretation in your translation. So there are various points in the Septuagint where you can see how the translation is kind of affected by what they think is going on. And sometimes that's very helpful for us. So to give you another example, Isaiah 7, when it says, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Well, in Hebrew, it says Betula, young woman. It could mean virgin, but it could just mean young woman. So why do we have virgin in our, in our English translations? Well, because when they translated the Hebrew into the Septuagint, they used the word for virgin. And so we're allowing, okay, well, this is how those, this is how those Jews, when they translate it, understood the Hebrew to mean it fits the context and it fits how it's used in the New Testament. So we use it, which is perfectly legitimate because the Hebrew could well mean that. It might not, but we think it does. When we look at the Septuagint or the LXX is another word for it, translation of Jonah 4, they don't use the Greek word for angry. It would be very easy to do so. Instead, they use the Greek word lupain which doesn't mean angry, it means anguish. So in, in Genesis 3, when it says uh, the, the curse of childbearing, it says that Eve's distress will be increased in childbearing. That's the word, anguish. It's a word that kind of speaks of mental or physical distress and upsetness. Um, so the fact that they chose to use this word when they're translating Jonah 4, rather than angry, kind of says something about how they're interpreting Jonah. And I think it's perfectly legitimate to follow that because the Hebrew could mean anguish or it could mean anger. So I'm not saying that, well, whatever the Greek Old Testament says, that's what we go with. No, because the Hebrew Old Testament is the scriptures, but it does inform us on how we should translate it. So I think it's far more likely that when Jonah wrote it, he was thinking more anguish because, I mean, the word for anger does appear in Jonah lots of times, but he chooses a different word when he's describing his own emotion. So it seems odd to me that he's saying, you know, like you're slow to anger, he says in 4 verse 2, and then he uses a very different word the next verse. I think it's far more likely that he is saying he's in anguish. So it should say in, in Jonah 4 verse 1, um, but it upset Jonah exceedingly, and he was in anguish. He was anguished exceedingly. And then throughout the rest of the chapter, whenever you read angry, read sorrowful, anguished, distressed, those kind of things. I don't think, as I say, I don't think it's a good translation to have. He was angry. I also think when you consider the context of Jonah, it's a very odd reaction. 
you know, knowing that his people have been, are going to judgment. He knows they're idolatrous, right? He knows that's what the covenant says. He knows that judgment's coming to them. I don't think that he would be there going, oh, I'm so angry that my people are being destroyed. It seems far more likely that he's seeing Nineveh being repenting. He's seeing this mirror of Israel being unrepentant and he's just broken. It's very similar to when Elijah, and we're going to look at this in a minute, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, when he runs away from Israel, knowing how sinful they are, he runs away and is so you know, upset over the situation. He's not angry about the people back home. He's just in anguish over them. I think that Jonah's in the same situation there. So what that means is that Jonah isn't, as I mentioned, as I've heard preached many times, the grumpy teenager looking out and being all angry that the people that he doesn't like have been saved. No, he's a he's a prophet that is mourning for his people. He's He's actually showing a real... Um, passion for those back home, a real kind of solidarity with his people, even though, as he said in chapter two, those who forsake, uh, those who go after idols forsake your love. He knows that they're getting what they deserve. He knows that it's going as it should be, but it's still hard to hear, still hard for him to deal with. So we really need to stop treating him like, you know, the whiny pants. Actually, he's, he's, uh, he's being the prophet. He's performing his role. Prophets weren't to be you know, triumphant about their people being judged. It was a real time of sadness. It'd be the same as if, you know, if I was in a church where um, the pastor came out one week and said, I'm not sure I can call myself a Christian anymore. That would be really hard to deal with. I mean, just the other day I heard about some people I know who are no longer calling themselves Christians and I wasn't particularly close with them, but it was sad. It's heartbreaking to hear that kind of thing. And Jonah's doing the same thing. So, um, so that kind of gives the context as we go through this. We have a man here, a prophet here, who is broken for the sake of his people. So let's let's move on to the, the second point, Jonah's death wish. He says, you know, so take my life from me. Again, I think this is a bit odd if he's angry, because when people get really angry, they don't, you know, angrily have a suicide wish. Um he, he's a broken person. He's saying, now, Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Now, as I mentioned earlier, if you compare Jonah's reaction here with Elijah in 1 Kings 19, it's a very similar situation. We already looked at Elijah, I think, in part two, Elijah in 1 Kings 17. You know, he's in the same context as Jonah with Israel not repenting when the prophets have been sent. And Elijah runs away. And I mean, if I just read a section from that story, Elijah runs and it says this, that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. for I am no better than my father's. And then if you jump down to chapter 10, uh, to verse 10, sorry, he's, um, the God, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah here is just so overcome with grief for the sake of his people. He's being the prophet that he just wants to die. He, he can't bear to see it. And as I kind of mentioned briefly, Prophets have a very strong solidarity with their people. Prophets weren't just 
individuals with a band of uh, people that they didn't really care about. They just had to give their messages, clock out and go home. They were from among the people to lead the people, to represent God to the people. They were just as much a part of it as they're talking, as the people they're talking to. So, I mean, Jeremiah gets called the weeping prophet because the amount of times he talks about crying for the people. Um, because the prophets, they get judged as well. It's not like when Assyria destroyed Israel, the prophets were left at home chilling out in luxury. No, they're part of it too. This is a strong solidarity. So what Elijah is saying is, I would rather die than go back to Israel and see how, unfaith- how unfaithful your people are, Lord. I just I can't bear to see it. And he you know, says, I'm no better than my father's. Well, it's not quite true, Elijah, because you've been faithful, as you just have said. But he is so um, identifying himself with his people that he says, I am no better than my father's. So, as I say, there's this solidarity. And that's exactly what we see Jonah doing. It's just the same. He's saying, I can't bear to see my people destroyed. Now, I don't know if Jonah is saying, maybe if I die, my people will be okay. That's possible. It's Clearly what Jonah thought was the case in chapter one, when he gets thrown overboard, he says to the sailors, throw me over and you'll be okay. Maybe he kind of thinks, well, it worked once, maybe it'll work again. Maybe it's as simple as him saying, I just can't bear to see my people judged. I don't know. Could be multiple things. But at the end of the day, Jonah is saying, I want to die because I can't bear to see this happen to my people, or I want to die for the sake of my people. So that's his uh, death wish. I want to kind of, rattle through these next two because I see what the time is. But um, we see God gives this image of a plant. You know, Jonah is sat there when all of a sudden a plant grows up over him and it gives him comfort and it gives him shade. Now, back in part one, we looked at Hosea and Amos and I read a few bits and I, I read this bit from Hosea 10 where it talks about Israel being this vine. So we've already seen it once, but um, Israel is by far the most commonly used analogy to describe unfaithful Israel or just Israel as a whole, really is a plant. They use horticultural analogies for Israel. Um, so I, I did a quick, I took about 10 minutes to do this search in 10 minutes of searching. I found these references to Israel being compared to a plant Two Samuel seven ten, one Chronicles 17, nine Psalm 80 verse eight, Psalm 80 verse 14, Isaiah five verse two, Jeremiah six verse nine, Verse uh, chapter 11, verse 6, chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 32, verse 41, chapter 42, verse 10, Ezekiel 17, 23, Hosea 9, 10, Hosea 10, 1, Hosea 14, 6, Amos 9, 15, Matthew 21, 19, Mark 11, Luke 13, Romans 11. So that was just, as I say, a minor bit of searching, didn't go particularly in depth. And all those references describing Israel as a plant using plant languages so um why has god brought a plant up over jonah when he's mourning his people well I, because god's giving this image of his people israel grows up jonah enjoys the shade from it and then god destroys it and notice what god says to not in verse nine he says but god said to jonah do you do well to be angry for the plant? You know, read that as, do you do well to be in anguish for Israel? And he says, yes, I do do well to be in anguish or distress. I'm distressed enough to die. 
And the Lord said, you pity the plants. I mean, just to pause again, if Jonah is angry, it doesn't quite make sense for Jonah to be saying, yes, I'm angry. And then God saying, you're pitying it. Anger doesn't fit with pity. Anguish fits with pity. But he said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being and perished in the night. So effectively, what God's saying is, the plant is not yours to worry about. You weren't the one who grew it. You weren't the one who tended to it. It came up aside from you, and it was destroyed aside from you. So don't, you know, Israel aren't yours to be concerned about. They're mine. They're my plant. They're not yours. God grows the plant. God destroys the plant. Um, now, I, if you read verse 11 and it says, and I should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are also 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. A lot of people use that verse to say, well, the lesson of the vine is that just as God made the vine and cares for it, so also he cares for Nineveh. Um, I can see why people would say that. We're not actually going to touch verse 11 today. Maybe going to do it on Friday because I think verse 11 has two different things to say. But all I'm, gonna, all I'm saying is that I think that the lesson from the, from the plant is in line with how the plant has been used the rest of, in the rest of the prophets is God saying, they're my people to worry about. They're not yours to worry about. You know, take, take what we've seen about Jonah so far. He's enjoying the comfort that he gets from the plant. He's enjoying the shade over his head, just as he enjoyed um, the, the benefits and the, what it means to be part of Israel. But he has to recognize that it's not his, it's God's. Um, and the last thing is the one. Um, now, I haven't put this on the handout, but um, there's two different interpretations for what the worm could mean. And, and one of them, I'll just give very briefly, is that this worm is a symbol for the Messiah. Because uh, if you if you read the use of the word worm, often does mean is a is a uh, link to the Messiah. So Psalm twenty two, I'm a worm, not a man, is is, the, is you know the crucifixion psalm. It's the one that Jesus quotes on the cross. Um, and Isaiah forty, it does the same thing. Use of the word worm. And so what people say is the plant is the symbol of Israel, and the worm comes along and destroys it, which gives this picture that when the Messiah comes. He's going to rejig Israel, reshape Israel. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, so the word for worm it is a very specific breed of worm. And this, this worm is it's called the scarlet worm. And it impales itself. It has to die to give birth to its young. And so you can see why it's used as a symbol for the Messiah. With Jesus, Through Jesus' death, we have life. It's through this worm's death, its children have life. Um, so it's very interesting but I, I'm just not convinced that that's what's going on here for a few reasons. Um, one of them, I just, I just don't think it fits the context. Jonah is talking about the destruction of Israel in 722, 40 years later. Well, Jesus is still 722 years away by the time that that's happened. So I, I don't see how that um, links in. I also just think that it seems a bit far-fetched to say that that happened for that reason. I'm, I, as I say, I'm not convinced. Several really respected Bible teachers and scholars I know would do that interpretation, but I just don't see it myself. Having said that, I do think that there is a significance for the worm. Why is it that God sends a worm to destroy the plant? God could have just made it so that the plant withered and died by itself. But I think it's 
just as we saw in part two, that the whole book of Jonah is based on a covenant curse from Deuteronomy 32. It's very specific to another covenant curse found in Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy 28 says this in verse 39. Um, you shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor of the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. Now, there's two words for worm in Hebrew. One of them means kind of wormy, maggoty things. One of them is this specific scarlet worm that I mentioned. Um, the word for the word that's found almost everywhere in scripture is the maggoty worm worm. There's only a few uses of this word for worm. Um, Jonah hasn't used the most common word for worm. He's used this specific one. I think he's making a reference back to Deuteronomy 28. Because if you read Deuteronomy 28, a few verses later, it says, and all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. So I think what Jonah is doing is, or what God is doing rather, is he's giving this grand drama to Jonah. So he just Jonah sees before his eyes Israel be grown overnight. He sees this physical resemblance of his people. And then he sees a covenant curse, a worm come up and attack it. And then it dies and withers away. And it's a provocative drama from God to show Jonah. So it seems to me like an intentional reference to that covenant curse. Um, so if we kind of with all those four parts, I'm aware of the times, so I'm going to try and bring it to an end now. If we, if we consider those four symbols, or, or the, rather the four elements, his anguish, his death wish, the plant and the worm, we kind of see that what's happening in this chapter is um, the same thing that happened to Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19. He is in such anguish that he would rather die as he sees this picture of his people being grown and tended to by God and then their unfaithfulness comes and the covenant curses come upon them and the worm comes and eats them and destroys them. So I think that that's what chapter four is doing. Now, as I say, we're going to look at verse 11, hopefully on Friday, um, to round it up a little bit. But I, I don't think that verse 11 is, is undermining anything that I've said. Um, so that, that I think is, is, as I say, the, the grand drama, of Jonah chapter four. Um, so yeah, hopefully that is helpful um, for kind of filling in the pieces as we as we come to the end of this study through Jonah. And hopefully we're seeing how this is and, and see how Jonah is functioning at a very specific time in covenant history. So I hope that was helpful for everyone. And uh, let me know thoughts and feedback or anything. And as I say, if you can't get your hands on the handout, it would be really great to for this one especially. So do let me know. But thanks very much. And hopefully... I'll see you all on Friday afternoon for the final part. All right. Cheers, guys.